I can tell you it's, it's not fair <laughs> to, you know, friends and colleagues who make wine from younger vine vineyards. I mean, it, it truly is an unfair advantage. Hello and welcome to the XNMO podcast. I'm David Clark. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa where the sale and movement of wine is at least for now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. Today on the podcast, we have Tegan Pasalakwa, who is based in California and is the director of winemaking at Turley Wine Cellars, a producer specializing in old vine wines, with Zinfandel being a particular focus, and is also the owner winemaker of Sandlands, his own project, which looks to highlight interesting and unique vineyards also in California. My wife Jeanette first met Tegan in 2003, when they were both interns at Craggy Range in New Zealand. They have remained friends ever since. I first met Tegan in 2008 when Jeanette and I visited him at Turley and was immediately impressed by his passion, his knowledge and his polite curiosity. I remember fondly a bottle of Turley Hain Vineyard Zinfandel he gave us on that visit. We were supposed to keep it for a long time but we drank it within a few hours at dinner that night and I have absolutely no regrets. Tegan worked for Ibn Sadi in the Swatland for almost the entirety of Vintage 2011. And as you will hear, he has a real fondness for South Africa. He's an unabashed champion of the new South Africa and her wines. We are lucky to have such a respected voice, such as Tegan's acting as an ambassador in California. It's all about the vineyards for Tegan, and he has this vast well of experience and knowledge upon which to draw. He is a fascinating conversation partner, and we have a far-reaching discussion. I truly hope you enjoy listening as much as I did participating. Just a couple of notes on the podcast. It was recorded on April 5th. Uh, we mentioned that South African wine exports were banned at, as part of the nationwide lockdown due to COVID-19. Thankfully, those bans were lifted two days later on the 7th of April. And when talking about acre to hectare conversion, we get it horrendously wrong. Um, 2.9 hectares is actually a little over seven acres. We had it the other way around. Just a quick note on also the quality of the audio. As we're in lockdown at the moment in South Africa, we are relying on the internet to record these podcasts and it doesn't always behave. Uh, we have done what we can to make it as listenable as possible. And Tegan and I talk over each other a few times in this podcast, mostly due to the delay, but sometimes I just can't wait to interrupt and ask another question, so I apologize for that. I'll give you Tegan Pasalakwa. I'm joined by Tegan Pasalakwa. Hi, Tegan. Hi, how are you, David? Good yeah, to hear good. from you. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, Tegan, maybe just quickly, um, most of my, yes. most of the listeners for this podcast are South African based because uh, it's about South African wine. Maybe yes. just introduce yourself uh, about what you do in your, in your link to South Africa and wine. I work for a winery in California called Turley Wine Cellars and we specialize in old, primarily old vine Zinfandel, but old vines in general. So we make old vine Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, Carignan, Grenache, uh, Alicante Boucher, anything that's really uh, old vine. We work with a little over 50 vineyards throughout the state of California. Uh, we farm, everything we farm is certified organic. And I've been there 17 years. And then I also have a, my own brand called Sandlands that's based on kind of varieties that are not Zinfandel or Petit Syrah. So it's uh, Mataro, Chenin Blanc, Carignan, Trousseau Noir. Uh, I made a little Grenache here and there. So that I've been doing since 2009. But my uh, true introduction to South Africa is actually through your wife. You know, your wife Jeanette and I work. Yeah, so she and I work 
together in 2003 at Craigie Range. We lived in a kind of a, a house that had a number of interns. There was a couple New Zealand kids, a French girl, and two Americans. And Jeanette, she brought a bunch of South African wines and, you know, we drank them and, you know, had a lot of fun. And that, that was actually what really, I'd had a, you know, a probably half dozen South African wines before that. And that's really what opened my mind to South Africa. So that was 17 years ago. I mean, usually, usually if someone says the sentence, uh, I was introduced to South African wine via your wife, that's a, that can be a, um, a problem, but, uh, in, in, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll excuse it. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the winery that you work for, the producer you work for, Turley, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so do they lease those vineyards? Do they, um, I mean, are you leasing those vineyards or are they all owned by Turley? We, we own about a third of what we, what we produce. So we own about a third. We lease almost a third and then we buy about a third of the grapes. It's a pretty good way to, uh, you know, hedge our bets. I always see these small Burgundian producers when the hail hits and you see a picture of their cellar and they're like, oh, there's, what are those three barrels doing there? They're like, that's the harvest, you know? So, you know, it helps soften the blow that, you know, one is we can't own every old vine vineyard that we'd like to own. So um, a lot of the producers or growers that we've worked with, we've always asked extra, you know, compost, cover cropping, dropping fruit, kind of just progressive, you know, agriculture. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you have old growers who just, one, it's hard for them to wrap their mind around doing these extra passes through the vineyard uh, in, in, the, in the purpose of wine growing when they're not the producer of the end product. So we've had a number of people that we just kind of take that, the financial, they still can drive the tractor. You know, we, we, we have so many different relationships, but whatever, however we can work it out if the vineyard is that important to us. So of course, working with old vine vineyards, we luckily we get to work with a lot of, you know, fifth and fourth and third generational family farmers. And so what, 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 whatever relationship works, you make that, uh, you put that in place and, and make it work, even if it's well, very you know, it's like relationship. any relationship. Yeah. If, if it works for both people, you know, yeah. we've had plenty of relationships, not plenty, but we've had a number of, you know, really special vineyards that, you know, people just don't, they like spraying Roundup, you know, or they yeah. like doing something and they just can't, you know, wrap their head around us throwing fruit out on the harvest, even though we're paying them above and beyond what they'd be making, you know, especially, you know, we deal with a lot of, in California, the, you know, we deal with a lot of old Italian family farmers and they, you know, throwing fruit out or dropping fruit is really, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a shot to the heart for them. They just can't imagine, you know, throwing, you know, something they farmed out, you know, even if it's in, in the pursuit of, you know, a a better quality end product. And the Sandlands project, do you um, exclusively work with old vines there as well? Or are you just looking for really good, uh, interesting sites? Not, not exclusively. And I mean, with Turley, we've planted some young vine vineyards too. You know, I mean, you can't just take, 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 you have to, you know, plant vines for your children and grandchildren, hopefully. So we planted a number of vineyards ourselves at Turley and, you know, with Sandlands, I kind of, started with old vine vineyards and you know when things come up that are intriguing and interesting you know i've 
kind of dipped my toe in and uh, played with those vineyards as well. So it's not exclusively old vines, but, you know, for lack of a, you know, it's a vineyards that, you know, have to kind of mean something to me. The recent in 17 and 18, I made uh, a Chardonnay in 17 and then two Chardonnays in 18 and very small production in 17. It was one barrel. And then, and everyone said, well, why, why do you make Chardonnay? And I said, well, one, you know, one vineyard was planted in 1966. The other was planted in 1968. And the, the, the truth of it is that my mother doesn't like Chenin Blanc. So I've been making Chenin for almost 10 years and every family gathering, you know, my mom's like, Oh, what are you pouring? And she just has some hang up for Shannon. You know, she, she likes her shardy, you know, that's kind of all she wants to, you know, that's all, that's my mom's wine. So yeah. in 17, a vineyard down the street from my parents' house, you know, this 19, it's the oldest Chardonnay in the Napa proper called the Haynes vineyard, Haynes with an S. Uh, Turley makes a Hain vineyard up in St. Helena, but different vineyard and, you know, okay. has 1966 dry farm Chardonnay. So I made that for my mom. (laughs) Wine for mama. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, 51-year-old vines the year I made, and it's dry farmed, and, you know, it's a a pretty cool site. Very cool. And what sort of production are you doing for Sandlands um, in terms of tonnage or or bottles per in in each harvest at the moment? In the U.S. of A., you know, they always refer to it as cases. So I I did 2,000 cases of 12 bottles, so I did – 24,000 bottles in uh, 18, and I did a little over 30,000 bottles in 19. Uh, I was able to get a couple vineyards or, you know, there's a grape glut in California right now. So 18 and 19 were, 18 is one of the best vintages I've ever seen. It just happened, it happened to be a good size vintage, not crazy, just a little bit above normal. And then 19 was the same way. So we have two really good vintages back to back, but also there's a huge amount of wine that will be hitting the market. So in 19, I had a lot of growers who were offering me some really good fruit that I'd never had access to. And I tried to be very selective and, you know, pick some things up here and there that I kind of felt fit what we were trying to, to do. And what's, what's the cause of the grape glut? Producers getting out of the game or is it just uh, a really bountiful harvest? Well, it was, you know, it's kind of, so there, there was a, the, there was a big rush of planting, you know, and uh, primarily the planting was, you know, not uber premium grapes, but people were planting a lot of Pinot Noir on the central coast of California and a lot of Cabernet every, I mean, kind of all the songs sound the same throughout the world. You know, it's like people are planting too much Pinot and too much Chardonnay. And, you know, a lot of the areas they're planting them are really focused on, you know, yield. They're not wines that you or I would really be searching out or drinking. You know, someone's auntie may serve it to us at a dinner party and we'll drink it, you know, politely. But, uh, and then, so there was a lot of planting and then it kind of the perfect storm of two large harvests back to back. You know, again, 18 all of the fruit that came in later in the year, that was, you know, it was a fire sale. You could yeah, buy this great fruit for, you know, one-tenth of the cost that, you know, because the, the, the folks who had the later fruit were kind of left holding the bag when all the sellers were full. So early on, people were taking overages and fruit. You know, if their contract said 10 tons and there was 12 tons in their block, they took it, but that only lasted so long. So, 
you know, and I'll, I have no problem saying, you know, especially in the premium market in Napa and Sonoma, I mean, the, the grape prices are too high. The wine prices are too high. You know, it's just, you know, the average price in Napa Cabernet, you know, topped, you know, eight, $8,000 a ton in 2018. And that means that the average bottle price is going to be over $80 a bottle. The average that, you know, I don't drink many $80 bottles of wine. That's only, that's so, only available to a certain very small percentage of the, of the world's wine drinkers, isn't it? I believe so. And yeah, you know, I mean, Napa Valley is a small place, but you know, the vacuum that that's caused over in Sonoma and it brought up the Pinot prices and you know, Pinots were up to 6,000, you know, a ton here and there. And it just, it's starting to create, you know, and, and in all honesty, I mean, the farming on a whole has, you know, gotten a lot better throughout, you know, the state. So, you know, people are paying more, they're doing more passes, they're doing kind of all, all the geeky things. But at the end of the day, you still, if you're paying $8,000 a ton, you really should be selling an $80 bottle of wine to make it a profitable venture yeah okay cool so that's that's the scene in terms of uh of california what um what we you have a, a, a bigger link to south african wine apart from working with Jeanette uh 17, yes. 17 years ago <laughs> um uh yeah. last, last time i saw you was at um the Swatland heritage festival uh yes was that last year or the year before i can't remember it was the year, I don't think they had, they ended up not having. Oh, it wasn't last year. Yeah. Last year was the, uh, yeah, so it was two years ago. So it was 20. Yeah. And then before that, last yep. time I saw you was actually at, uh, at Yvonne Cellar. Yes. In, was that, when was that? It was 11, 2011. And so you were interning at, uh, at Yvonne Cellar. How did you, how did you get there? Yep. Well, he and I had met over at Hospice de Rhone and, um, Turley, since 2008, I've made an old vine Cinso vineyard in actually in Lodi planted in 1886. Yeah, wow. And, you know, so, so far it's, it's, it's kind of known as the oldest Cinso in the world. You know, Phylloxera hit the south of France more at the turn of last century. So there are a lot of 1910 Cinso vineyards planted, but not a lot of uh, pre-1900 vineyards. So we had met and we're hanging out and then he didn't, but I had brought a bottle of the old Vine Cinso we make, and he kind of really was jiving on that. And we just started talking about old vineyards and organics. And, you know, he's like, you really have to come out to South Africa. I said, I've always dreamed of it. You know, I've always kind of dreamed of coming out. And so that kind of started a conversation. He's like, you really should come out, you know, come out this harvest. So I kind of, my wife now, but girlfriend then, we lived together. And, you know, I kind of said, okay, I'll go out for a little bit. And then I kind of you know, talk to my boss about taking a sabbatical. So I actually was able to come out for 11 weeks and kind of see the work help out with the whole harvest. And my now wife came out and we actually got engaged out in South Africa. And it's a, I mean, I'm preaching, you know, it's a special, it's a very special place in the world. And it's a very special place to, you know, grow wine in the world as well. Maybe talk us through your experience. I mean, it's 11 weeks. So there's obviously a lot to, uh, to talk about. Maybe just chat to us about what you found, uh, what you, maybe what was unexpected when you, when you came um, to South Africa in terms of the wine and vineyard situation. I'd known the wines for a while before that thanks to, you know, the introduction to Jeanette and kind of reading a lot about the the regions and tasting a lot of the wines. There are a lot of, not a lot, but there are a number of places in California that 
remind me of South Africa, okay. but you know, it's also like, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, but it's, it, it's like, you've seen people kind of ride a skateboard, you know, down the street. That's what was happening in California and a lot of these regions. And then you go to South Africa and you see people really knowing how to ride a skateboard. And to me, it was this understanding of how to harness, you know, energy and, you know, and I'm not trying to, you know, it, there, there was an enlightenment in South Africa that, you know, was just kind of coming into California at the same time, old vineyards, young farmers, young, you know, wine growers, people kind of setting out on their own and people do it in California and they have, but, you know, I feel like myself included, you know, a lot of Americans, young winemakers like a safety net of their day job. And yeah. it seemed like when I went to South Africa, you just had a lot of people who were just kind of saying, you know what, this is what I want to do and I'm going to make it work. Yeah. And a bit more uh, of a pioneering spirit perhaps. I, I'd, I'd say so. And, you know, California has that in areas, but in certain areas, like I think of the Sierra foothills and, you know, Lodi and Contra Costa, like we haven't, I, I read a lot, you know, and I, South Africa wine history is one of my favorite things to read about. And before 1998 or 2000, you know, what the KWV had a stronghold on the Swartland and what was being done from a small independent producer a little more than 20 years ago in the Swartland. And there wasn't much. So you can, you see the same thing in vineyards and regions you know, in some of the lesser known regions in California that the soils are interesting and the climate's interesting. And, you know, I think it's just, it's fascinating to see how, you know, a, a group of people could kind of revolutionize, you know, the independent wine wine scene in a, in a whole country in, in such a short time. Yeah, no, obviously it is a, uh, a unique case here. I mean, I think one of the things um, I mean, going back to what you said about the price of Cabernet, um, I know that's the most premium uh, fruit, but I think that's one of the things that allowed it to happen here in terms of the, the, the fruit prices were so low. So there wasn't that massive amount of risk in terms of buying, you know, four or five tons of fruit in terms of just in, in terms of cash value. Well, and I think that that is true. And, you know, California has the regions I mentioned, you know, the foothills and the they have, I mean, it's very similar, you know, but for some reason, people just couldn't see that. I mean, okay. you know, I mean, you look at like, you know, South Australia, you, you had a lot of young people back then, you know, 20 plus years ago who started their own brands, but they were kind of just doing more of the same of what was successful already in, you know, South Australia, where, you know, I kind of feel like what was being done in, in South Africa was, you know, that there was a freshness to it, you know, that kind of really, you know, was able to garner the attention. And, you know, it really somehow resonated with people, you know, throughout the world. And I don't, I mean, I can think about it, and I can talk about it. But I mean, there, there really was, you know, kind of that right place, right time, the right people. And, no, absolutely, yeah, uh, and it yeah. wasn't that many people, to be honest. So, I mean, the personalities involved are, are quite important because if different people have uh, started this that that sort of movement, if you want to call it that, uh, I don't think it would have been necessarily as as widespread and, and as well known. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like someone in California, for the most part, and 
you know, we're a Mediterranean climate as well. And, you know, I think everyone in California has wanted to go work in Burgundy and Bordeaux. And I love those wines when I can afford and drink them, the, the best examples. But people who go and work there that come back that are friends of mine, it's like, how does that apply to what we're trying to do here? You know, yeah. and to me, that was what was most important about my time in South Africa was how could I apply what was happening there to here? California and Northern California has been pretty progressive with farming and, you know, organics from, uh, you know, the guy I worked for Larry Turley, he originally started Frog's Leap and that's the first certified organic vineyard in Epic County. And, you know, everything at Turley's organic, I mean, I've never had to spray a non-organic chemical in my life. I realize how lucky I am that that hasn't been a, a, uh, a request that my boss has made, but I kind of look at the whole progressive farming. It's, it's not written in stone. It's a journey. It's something that, you know, I know a lot of people who are trying to get to a place that haven't been able to achieve what they want, either in the wines or the farming, you know, for financial reasons, or there's just a lot of reasons people can't get there. And, you know, I think that's, something that you know again the right place and right time in south africa there are you know you guys have a treasure trove of old vineyards you know that weren't really well garnered by you know the wineries that historically had taken them so no absolutely not yeah they thank thank god for for rosa and and the people she works with you know you've been included the uh the Malinus, yeah it's uh she's been really the driving force behind that old vine uh, awareness in south africa for sure well, and, you know, Turley and, you know, I'm, I'm part of a nonprofit here in California called the Historic Vineyard Society. We started it in 2010, and it was due to some of the greatest vineyards in California being ripped out to be replanted into Cabernet or Pinot Noir. You know, the one thing I say, and people, you know, a lot of our supporters want to bash a lot of the big companies, and it's easy to say the gallows of the world didn't pay people f- fairly or, you know, the KWV, the way their negotiations and relationships weren't fair, but I think negotiation is being very kind. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, you have to realize that those, those relationships kept the vines in the ground. And I'm not saying that it was like a healthy relationship and I'm not saying that it was something that we would ever want to replicate, but you look at like old vines in California and, you know, I'd say 95% of them went to Gallo for a long time. And the, you know, the farmers weren't paid that much, but like, because of Gallo being this, who they are, you know, we now get to fine tune those vineyards. And I feel like the same thing. So, and I know that it, it, it wasn't like a, a happy, you know, relationship, but you do have to realize is that if they weren't there, would those old vineyards still be in the ground that then people can come in and, you know, it's, you know, it's like people who kept an old car for a car enthusiast to come and like restore it and tune it up. Like, yeah. you know, you can say they never respected what the car was worth or they treated it poorly, but I mean, at least let's be in the pre- yeah, let's be in the present time. Like those vineyards are there and now it allows people to work with old vineyards and, you know, any, you know, we work with old vineyards and 
you know, the replanted vines and old vineyards, we always pick those separately and make the wine separately. Those don't go into our vineyard designate single vineyard wines. And I can tell you it's, it's not fair <laughs> to, you know, friends and colleagues who make wine from younger vine vineyards. I mean, it, it truly is an unfair advantage. You know, the stability, color, structure, tannin, you know, it's all harmonious. It's not, you know, and we've made some really good wines out of young vineyards, but you taste them next to their old vine counterparts and it just, it really isn't fair. So, I mean, you know, in the long arcing history, you know, of everything, you have to look at like, how did those vineyards come to be 35, 45, 55, 65, 100 and, you know, 10 years old? Like who took the grapes and allowed them to make it to where they are? Yeah, I've got a slightly different um, take on it. Uh, and, I don't, and I acknowledge the fact that for sure that um, they were willing to buy the grapes and, and allow the farmers to, to keep the, the vines in the ground. But I think what it has done and them being so cutthroat in terms of their, uh, in inverted commas, negotiations, is yep. that only the really great vineyards survive to get to old vine status because anything that wasn't bearing enough or was slightly marginal would have been ripped out. So what they've actually yeah. done is, is culled a lot of the, 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 the fat away and left the, the, the muscle and the, the real core of, of really great vineyards. So that was and, sort of like a, almost like a triage system. Um, that's exactly what I'm saying is like, yeah. we might not like their, you know, methods and not agree with them. And I'm not saying that I agree with them, but you have to look at the end result and it's like, okay, like you can't go back in time. You have to say, okay, we now have these resources, you know, kind of thank you, but not thank you for kind of keeping them half alive for us now to, you know, really let them shine. And I mean, that's the wine industry and the history of the wine industry. You have to look at it the the long term and, you know, I mean, with this, you know, COVID-19, I mean, what's going to happen when, you know, we can't sell wines and, you know, we're making wines from these low yielding vineyards that it's too expensive to farm. And we all want to be heroes and save the day, but, you know, maybe it is some of the large wineries that can, you know, and, and I'm not a supporter of large winery. I'm a supporter of independent, you know, wine growers, but, you know, there's only so much, you know, young, you know, uncapitalized folks can do. <laughs> yeah. And there's, and there's only, um, a, there is a, a relatively high, uh, price floor that, that independent, uh, growers and producers have to sell their wines for to, to make a profit and to put that investment back into the vineyards to ensure the longevity of the, of the vineyards going forward. For sure. And I mean, you, you know, you know who I'm rooting for, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's a story of, you know, wine and in, you know, most new, new world or colonized, you know, countries, however people want to, one of the things I had heard at one point is like, how do you define new world and old world wine? And it was like, has it been colonized? And it's like, well, how long ago yeah. are we talking about, you know? So no, I, I think it's, you know, it's a, you know, we can all, we can look back and say, wow, the last like 15 years has been really amazing in the world of wine, you know, but the reality is like, what's the next two years going to look like? Because it's, 
as we know, you know, you look at all the small producers in California and Australia and South Africa, like this is a time that's going to be really tough for all of us, you know, to, who are trying to, you know, make it on their own. It, it's, it's going to be an interesting time. I mean, I think we all know the best way to do that is just tell our friends and people who love one, you know, su- support your friends and small producers as much as possible. But, you know, everyone better be digging in their heels and kind of, you know, digging in the heels, but also getting ready to launch off the, you know, off, off in the race. Uh, it's, it's going to be very, it's, it's not going to be the same place for sure. After, after this, it's going to be a very different, uh, and how different we don't know, obviously. In South Africa at the moment, we were chatting before I started recording, but in South Africa at the moment, and we're chatting on, well, it's the 5th of April here, and it's the 4th of April uh, in, or just maybe, maybe just turned no. the 5th of April. It, it, um, it's the 5th here now. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> um, South Africa's in the in sort of day 8, I think, 8 of a, a national lockdown in which wine and alcohol sales and movement are banned. So people can't buy wine, they can't sell wine, they can't uh, export wine. So it's, it's a real uh, lockdown situation. Um, so it, restaurants have to close, um, bottle stores have to close, all of their employees don't have a, uh, a job for the next three weeks, some of whom rely on their paychecks, you know, live from paycheck to paycheck. Perhaps wine uh, exporters uh, are going to lose listings internationally because they can't fulfill their obligations. Uh, so it's going to be a very, very interesting uh, road back. Um, in the and that's an interesting conversation about the, you know, the people internationally who would lose their listing. You know, my wife works for a company out here who imports, you know, some high end, you know, Italian and Austrian and Portuguese wines among others. And, you know, a lot of that's been talked about of people losing their, like, you know, their listings where, I think the one thing we have up on it, the small producers that, you know, we are not relying on, you know, these kind of, you know, national listings as much, you know, so I think in some way, you know, it is going to hurt the larger producers a bit more, you know, who rely on big, you know, listings of restaurants or grocery stores or, you know, and in, in California right now and in, why, so that it's a bit different here. All the restaurants are shut down. Wineries can continue to work as ex- essential duties. You know, we were closed down for two weeks. We kind of brought some guys back in the vineyard to kind of make sure we weren't getting behind. We're just at bud break here. So okay. vines are really starting to grow and, you know, we got to get vineyards mowed and, you know, cultivate under vine. And, you know, we're, we're at that point, but, you know, wine sales here, they've, they've allowed a lot of restaurants are trying to serve food to go. Yeah. I'd probably say 10% of restaurants are doing that successfully, maybe less than 10, 10% of the restaurants we would dine at. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is they're letting a lot of restaurants sell wine direct to consumer, you okay. know, basically sell and alcohol to go. So it's definitely kept, you know, there are a number of restaurants here in Napa, uh, Joel Gott, who's a you know, known winemaker. He has a place called Gott's Roadside that used to be called Taylor's Refresher. For any folks who ever worked in California or Napa Valley for a harvest, I'm sure everyone went to Taylor's. But, you know, Joel Gott came out two weeks ago and just said, look, 100% of our sales, you know, from this pickup roadside is going to go to our workers. Not 100% of profits, but 100% of sales. And That's awesome. 
you know, everyone's like, is that for real? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think he's been successful enough that he knows he can do it. But, uh, you know, so, I mean, a lot of retail sales are through the roof right now. You know, yeah. we'll see how long that lasts as people start to run out of money. Well, that's uh, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a finite resource a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, well, sorry, it, is a, it, it is a finite resource. Apologies, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if money's not coming in, you know, pe- but again, I think, you know, people seem to be supporting smaller producers, you know, more, you know, everyone, you know, it's that kind of holy grail of everyone wants a wine that's made by a human being, you know, where human beings touch it most of the time, but, you know, they want to be able to afford it and not kind of have to worship it as they drink it and tell everyone that's drinking it with them to pay attention and take it seriously. And put it on Instagram and, and everyone. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's tough, you know, I mean, everyone, you know, wants to be, I hope, you know, clearly I hope wine drinking in South Africa is not banned. I hope everyone who has people a, can drink, they just can't buy it. Yeah. So there was this, yeah. and that was only that we were only informed of that like the day before lockdown. So the day of lockdown, uh, was Thursday last week. Yeah, Mexico stopped producing beer, I know. So everyone's yeah. been going and like, you know, Modelo is kind of the beer of people who work in wine and, you know, everyone's kind of trying to stockpile it. And, you know, that's going to be the the new uh, Raymond Troyal wine that everyone's posting. Is they going to be posting drinking Modelo here? Yeah. In <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going around, you know, saying, um, how, we, how can we make a drink out of hand sanitizer? Because everyone's got hand sanitizer. So... And that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah, the twenty sixth of March, Thursday, uh, we went in lockdown midnight on that night, and uh, every retail wine retailer was hit. As a, the, that I sold to was hit pretty hard, and their shelves were were absolutely emptied. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting going forward for sure. Um, trying to maybe get off um, COVID nineteen just for a second. Let me let me ask yeah. you a question really quickly, yeah. if you yep. can. I mean, of course. so. When I was there in 11, you and Jeanette had come back from Australia and... We hadn't you, yet. We were on our... No, remember you came back and you, you were you were working at a... You were doing a stage at the restaurant in Cape Town. Yeah. No, I was... Um, Jeanette, we came back for... What, I'm not sure what we, we... We may have come back for a wedding, uh, okay. perhaps, or we were only here for we were coming, yeah. three weeks or something, and I decided to do a... Uh, I was... Um, still in my sommelier days uh, back in Melbourne at that point. I love the way Aussies pronounce sommelier, by the way. I just, uh, yeah, I yeah. I, I, love, <laughs> I, I love the fact that, um, that, uh, that Americans get all French on, on that one word, but then just yep. leave all of the accent off every other French word they say. Everything. So. <laughs> so my question for you is, so what yep. do you think changed since 2011? Oh, in, everything. You know, in, um, I was I was lucky enough to come to Cape Wine incidentally almost because I was busy chasing Jeanette at that point uh, in 2006. So there was Cape Wine 2006. And then they missed one because they had the World Cup here in 2010. 2006 or 2007, I can't remember now. Uh, and then the next Cape Wine I had came was 2012. So 2006. Well, what year did you and Jeanette come out to Napa? That was 08. Okay. Oh, wait. Yeah, yep. So we got married in 07. We couldn't afford yep. a, uh, a honeymoon in 07. So we waited a year and then we, uh, we, we did a, a around the world trip in 08. So we yep. had a week in California where we visited you yep. um, and some other producers that, uh, um, that Jeanette either worked for or 
people we, she worked with who had now gone into to winemaking roles that you'd had. Right. A week in Chile, a week in Argentina, and then a week in South Africa on our way back to Australia. So it was a, it was a really cool trip. That was in 08. But yeah, the difference between Cape Wine in 2000 and I think it was seven actually, and then 2012 was immense. The, the, the wines in 2007 were pretty dire, like 95%. There was two producers that really stood out for me at that, uh, that um, uh, Cape Wine was uh, Scarly um, from, yep. from Pua Paderberg um, and, yep. then, and then um, Yerbin's Wines, which I hadn't really yep. heard of at that point. Well, sort of whispers and bits and pieces. And I mean, there was wines elsewhere that were, were, were good wines, but they weren't, I mean, they were just good wines. They weren't good South African wines. And then I think that's what's been the, the big, the, the huge jump is that a movement away from sort of quote unquote international styles of wines um, into what yeah. I would term as, as South African wines, i.e. wines of place, wines concentrating on the vineyard, uh, wines of heritage, um, coming back in 2012, there was a whole bunch more interesting producers. I mean, that's where I met uh, Chris Arlight and Susie Arlight, who had just um, uh, just released or just were, were, were showing off their first cartology in 2012. Um, Peter Allen Finlayson was doing some really interesting stuff. Uh, Craig Hawkins at Lammershook uh, had really sort of changed gears. Uh, Jürgen Horst from Interlego, Jan Mayer from JH Mayer, and he was making another wine, Antebellum Shannon. That's where I tasted the Porsche Lamberg made by Kali. That was, that was a, I, I still love that wine. It's one of my favorite wines uh, in South Africa. But at that point, it was mostly just the Swartland and a couple of guys down in, uh, down in Emelin Arda, down the Overberg. So that's on the south coast, uh, Cape South Coast, yep. if, you're, if you're into your WOs. Uh, it wasn't Cape South Coast then, but it is now. And then 2015, the, uh, Cape Wine, because this is really the, uh, the, only, the only time that the industry sort of gets together, and it's every sort of three years. So it's a really good um, milestone to talk about in terms of in Cape Wines rather than yep. uh, anything else. Because so, we don't have something like Provine or, or Vinitaly every year. It, it, is sort of, right. it is triennial. So every three years. So the next one was 2015 and that sort of movement had spread around the country. So then you get things like the Cravens um, uh, in, out of Stellenbosch, uh, more guys down in um, the Emelin Arda, um, Hunter Storm down that point of, of time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then it was a sort of like a mushrooming effect uh, or a rippling effect. There was this big explosion or a big sort of seismic event um, over the, the course of six, five or six years in, in the Swartland. And I've just, I spoke to Artie um, during the week and recorded a chat with him about his, how he set up his farm and, and why he moved out there. And uh, so, he, I mean, he was one of the, the real movers and shakers uh, with, with Ivan and, uh, and the Mullinous, obviously. Well, here's an interesting thing that you said, and it's something that I think about here in California is that, you know, you mentioned in, you know, 08, the international style of wines, but, you know, it's interesting. It seems like the people who have traveled the most internationally are the ones who then come home to roost to not make international wines. You would think, you know, it seems like the people who have been doing it the same way in these regions in California and Australia, you know, the ones that never travel, they're the ones who actually like somehow latch on to the international 
you know, the, the wine, you know, the carrot that's hanging out there for, you know, big points. And I mean, it seems like those who have traveled somehow have this awakening where, you know, you're like, well, they've traveled internationally and now they come back and what are they making? And they're making, you know, these progressive wines, you know, why aren't they making international wine? And I, I, yeah, I think it's more of a nomenclature issue. I think the, the, the term international wine doesn't mean that um, the wines taste um, no, like I understand. Overseas, but that they, they, they taste like they could come from anywhere internationally, not for from, sure. But, yeah. but the, arg- the argument would be like, you know, and I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately, you know, I can talk trash about Americans, but it's like, oh, you know, they want to like speak one language and, for me, that's kind of this thing where you think that if in theory people, you know, who have traveled more would be like, well, I've got it figured out. This is the way, but, you know, and I know what you're saying, but I just think it's a fascinating thing that like to kind of make wines of place in the new world, it seems like the people who are doing those are some of the people who have traveled the most. Yeah, I- I think maybe I can put it in a different way. I mean, you said you read a lot. Um, do you think reading, uh, maybe this is a better way to say an, an, an I statement rather than a you statement. From my point of view, when I learn about a subject, the more I learn about the subject, the more I realize I do not know. So I right. think that might be a, a, a good way of explaining these guys and girls who, who, um, who travel and experience lots of different uh, um, styles of wine in different areas with different climactic and, and different cultural inputs. They realize that there is this big wide world out there and they are only a, a very small part of it. Um, and what part they decide to be in it, sort of that is in, informed by their, um, by the realization that there are so many other choices to be made, not just that, in inverted commas, that international style. Well, and I'm wondering if it's, you know, people go out and they like see what, you know, you go to, you know, Napa Valley and you see what, you know, $80 Cabernet looks like and it's kind of bulk farming and they're like, well, shit, we have back home some really special vineyards. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm going to go home and make really cool wines. I mean, that's, that's, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, cause you look at, we all worship at, you know, the, the feet of, you know, you know, someone, again, you know, the Raymond Troyas of the world and the, you know, the people who have never left, you know, never gone over, you know, 60 kilometers from where they were born. But it seems like in the new world, the most, the thing that seems to invigorate the young producers the most is that they have traveled. Well, I think, and, I, mean, I mean, from a, from a South African point of view, I think, I mean, the, the fine wine culture here is non-existent. In, in any real sense, pre-94. I mean, there was some nice wines coming out, but it wasn't a fine wine culture. So to go for a producer who grew up in, say, uh, the west coast of, of the Western Cape uh, in a pretty uh, rural community and then all of a sudden go to Burgundy and see, all, see the, the culture surrounding this beverage that uh, back home is just a way to get hammered, uh, that, that is a huge game-changer in... Um, in one's mind. No, I mean, I, I just, and again, my point of bringing it up was it's something that I think about a lot that, yeah. you know, you would argue that like, 
it's just travel, man. You know, it's amazing what travel does to people, you know, and I can say from my experience here in California that the people that seem to be, you know, the most open-minded are those who have traveled the most. And sometimes it might be to a fault and, you know, sometimes it's spot on, but, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, fascinating that none of the best producer, young producers are people like, Nope, I've only worked here for 20 years and this is all I do. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. I mean, from my point of view, um, I mean, I lived two years in, in, in the UK, in, uh, in London, uh, and then I've been here, oh, what's that now, seven years. So that's nine years out of 40 um, outside of Australia. And I think I know more about, I've got a better, uh, a more balanced opinion or uh, feelings about um, Australia now than I would do had I never left. So I think right. you, have a, you have a better way of looking at your own situation having travelled. So it's not really, from my point of view at least, I didn't, I mean, you learn about other places you go. I mean, I did a three-month tour of Europe and I've obviously been into um, uh, the US a couple of times and South America a couple of times. Um, not like massive stints or anything, but you learn a little bit about uh, that place and that culture. But I think you, what I've taken away at least is in the long term is a, is a, is a more... Um, uh, a, a different perspective to look at where, where I'm from and how I grew up and how that sort of fits in, in the, in the world. For sure. I, I, you know, and I guess my roundabout is, you know, I feel like that's what, you know, luckily, you know, South Africa had, you know, you know, allowed me to do as well. You know, yeah, right. it's, uh, you yes, know, I'd worked. Yep. In New Zealand, I mean, when I worked in New Zealand, when I left for New Zealand, I'd never left the country. I'd been to like Nevada and Arizona, and that's mm. it in my life, you know. And leaving for New- my parents have never left the country, you know. It was a big move, and you know, the wine industry for the most part has taken me out of the country every year since then, you know. And yeah, it's been right. a really, you know, amazing way to see the world, you know, through the lens of, you know, wine growers. Interesting. It's Jeanette um, uh, says that that was the first time she ever spoke English full time. Uh, right. So for those who don't know, my wife's Afrikaans, so she they, she grew up uh, speaking Afrikaans, which is sort of a, like a Dutch based language, obviously with other things going on. So English wasn't her, isn't her first language, and so her time at Craggy Range was the first time that she had to listen and speak English full time, and she right. and she and she says um, that uh, she understood you much better than the than a lot of the other um, people there because of TV. So she was used to hearing the American accent <laughs> and the Californian accent in particular yep. um, more than, say, the Kiwi accent. And uh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's stuff like that where us um, native uh, English speakers just take for granted. So what do you think the next, you know, 10 years of, you know, South African wine look like? Yeah, I'm, I'm very bad at crystal balling. Um, I think grape yeah. security is going to be a huge issue because uh, there's so, so let many. Me re, let me, let me re-ask uh, the question. Yeah. What would you like the wine industry to look like in the next 10 years? Yeah. Not crystal look, balling, but kind of, yeah. you know, know. David <laughs> ruling the, the world. Uh, yeah, it all to come under my control. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's a difficult one. I'd actually probably be more comfortable answering the first one rather than, because I, I don't deal in wishes and preferences. I, I find that 
um, difficult, to be honest. I don't, I don't think that way, I guess. Um, so I think grape security. Uh, well, but, and can I, inter- I mean, I feel like yeah. asking questions like that, it's asking like, you know, someone serves you a dish and you go, you want more salt on this or less salt? And you're like, eh, it's okay. You know, or yeah. you're like, yeah, we should, you know, no, it's over salted. So well, yeah. I'm not asking well, 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 like, be, yeah. But once you've got the dish, you can't put less salt on it. Exactly. So, <laughs> but you can you can you can wish for it. You say next oh, that's time. True. I see. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to yeah. make oh, this. Now I'm with you. Know. Sorry. I'm yeah. With you. yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> yeah. Look, the rate of change here has been so dramatic that, and you know, the next six months is going to be another like seismic shift in um, in in movement. It's it's a really uh, I mean. I can maybe talk about uh, a culture. I, I want South African wine to be taken more seriously internationally. Um, at the moment, it is a, a very bit player. You know, it is a sort of a paragraph on the last two pages of wine books still. Um, um, I, I think that South Africans' best wines have not been made yet. Um, there are some really great wines historically, but I think that the future of South African wine is super bright because of the... In, in huge part to the to the people and uh, that we've spoken about and the processes and the and the paths that they've they've been forging for sort of you know twenty plus years. I think grape security is going to be. So I mentioned this already a couple of times, but is going to be an issue going forward as there's more and more sort of negotiant style producers producers coming in and buying fruit only and not having their own vineyards. Those vineyards will come under strain. There is only so much vineyard available that having uh, if you build your brand on a on a on a certain vineyard um that vineyard can be taken away from you uh, quite quickly as a as a as a pendulum swing against that producers are not necessarily championing the farmer but they're 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 championing a proprietary name for their wines that are based on a vineyard but they don't really want to and I'm painting with broad brushstrokes here. There are um, producers out there who really champion um, the farmer and, and the vineyard. Uh, but there are producers out there that put um, a proprietary name on their wine. There is a single vineyard wine that comes from one spot, but they don't want to sort of marry the brand of that wine to that spot just in case um, that that vineyard gets taken away from them. Um, I mean, I, I, I can talk uh, about a producer that I work with, which is John Seckham from... Uh, Thorn and Daughters, he was working with a, a very old Semillon vineyard in Franschhoek, amazing wine. And then that, that yeah, so the, the paper kite. And then that vineyard was no longer available. Was some of that going to the rocking horse too, or was that just? I believe it was a component, yeah. Um, yeah. And then that vineyard was taken away from him. The, the farmer, um, the owner had a, a change of business strategy. Um, and so he had to shift. And so now he buys old vine Semillon. Uh, so it's, it's, it's still old vine semillon, but now from the Swatland. So a very different um, from right. um, from uh, Francisco Wickens on Vatafol Farm. So yeah, uh, so it's still called old vine uh, paper kite old vine semillon, but it is now. And he wasn't secretive about it. I mean, he's one of the. I mean, John's as you probably know is one of the the real nice guys of the industry. So he wasn't sort of trying to hide the fact that it was uh, a change of vineyard. I mean, he didn't he didn't put it on the front label, but. It, if, if, if you do notice, and he does talk about the fact that, that that vineyard was taken away from him or he lost access to it, so he had to find a replacement because he wanted to work with Old Vine Semillon. But the real decision he made was to still call it Paper Kite. 
So not call it something else and say, well, Papercut was that vineyard and then I'm going to call this new vineyard something um, something else because it is a new experience. He decided to call it Papercut because that, that, that name already had credence and weight in the, in the marketplace. So grape security, I think, for that one of the, some of those reasons is, is, is going to be a problem going forward for, for a certain yeah, time. I mean, even if you don't know own it you don't own it i mean even there was a vineyard that turley had from the beginning we leased it we you know converted it to organics you know it was planted in 1906 it's the closest vineyard to where i grew up it's yes. my parents house it was about a two kilometers away from my parents house and we lost it in 2008 and it took me two years to drive by the vineyard and it was like, nor I had to go out of the way to not drive by the vineyard for two years. And the most like fucked up thing ever is that in 2010, two years after that we had this horrible heat wave and like a lot of the fruit got roasted, you know, in vineyards. And that's the only reason I drove by. I'm like, I wonder, did it get hurt too? And I finally like drove by the vineyard, but it took me two years to drive by a vineyard, but it's, you know, it's probably taken me, 10 years after that to realize, look, we don't own it. You're like, it's not ours. It's a vineyard we'd worked with for, you know, 18 years, but we don't, you know, we don't own it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that with the whole movement in all of the, you know, the regions, you know, it's, it seems like it's only in, you know, France and Spain that you have all these young farmers who are able to buy, you know, a lot of vineyards, you know, when they're young and underfunded, but, I think that's going to be the hardest thing moving forward in California. And I think, you know, in South Africa, a lot of, you know, farms are decent size. So it's, I know Chris, they bought a farm in the Swartland last year, but you know, yeah. it's hard. And I think, you know, as all the work that the, the combined work that people are doing to be progressive, you know, the Chris and Andrea, the Audis, the, you know, the Craigs, the Evans, like, it's just shining this light on the region and what they're doing. And it wants everyone else to come in and, you know, scoop it up and pay more money. And that, that happened in California. You know, that, that, that's the one thing I can say that happened before in California and South Africa is that, you know, people started paying, swooping up vineyards and paying more money for fruit that, you know, small producers were, you know, having them help define their brand, you know, and, it's it's tough. And was that was that was that movement of uh, paying uh, more for fruit? Was that driven by smaller producers, or was that driven by bigger producers? Just it's, it's an interesting question because on paper, if you looked at it, it's by smaller producers. But you went from you know kind of owner winemaker, you know the kind of career winemaker who started their own brand, who started working with some legendary vineyards, and then you got into wealthy businessman coming from outside the industry who hires a consulting winemaker and says, wow, that wine's really good. Can't we just pay more and get that fruit and make it better? You know, so that, that's the, that, that kind of happened, you know, early 2000s in California where you had these people who had been, you know, successful kind of flying under the radar, you know, the kind of the the every man's hero in the wine industry you know not getting huge scores and not huge but just doing a good job and then you got a lot of you know the wealth came in that that well we'll just pay double what they were paying and these small producers are like well we can't make it work at that you know we can't match that 
Yeah. You know, we've been selling the wine for $45 a bottle. We can't sell it for 120 next year. Yeah. And the new producers, you know, that's the, the, the biggest problem with Napa Valley and the wine industry there is that, you know, the recent publications were that 75% of Napa Valley wineries don't make a profit. Not that they lose money, but it's not a lot of winery owners goal to, you know, it's not how they put food on their table. And like at Turley, like Larry and, you know, the old boss who I had, Aaron Jordan, like everyone paid our rent or mortgage by the success of the winery mm. where, you know, 75% of Napa Valley wineries, they don't need the winery to be successful for them to, you know, put their kids in college and, you know, make a car payment and a rent payment. And, you know, I think, you know, they, they can still make smart wines, but they're not, not you know, it's, it's just a different game, you know, in the last 15 years. Yeah. So they're, I mean, they're not reliant on the, on the winery. That's just a, a minor capital investment for them. It's not part of their, their livelihood. Well, and the problem is for small producers is you're now competing in a business where your competition doesn't need to make a profit when you do. And that's just, it's fucked up. You know, I don't know how else to put it. It's just, you know, it's, you know, and I hope, you know, it's, you can see how that, you know, easily happens where you get a lot of people say, Oh, I want a winery too. Yeah. Well, it's almost, it's, it's a, I mean, there's a problem here in, in South Africa in terms of, uh, in terms of price, you know, retail price for wines. I mean, um, there is a, uh, South African wines are too cheap is the, uh, is the is the global sort of um, understanding, and one of the reasons for that, I think, is that, that there is such a low barrier to entry to make wine in South Africa. Right. So there's always someone else willing to, who has access to you know some Chenin Blanc and can sell it for 150 um, rands a bottle rather than 350 or 450 rands a bottle. So you have to be able to separate your brand from that brand uh, to to be able to justify. The, the, the difference in price because there's always going to be someone and that might not be those new players selling wine at cheaper and might not be around for very long, but there's always going to be new players doing that. So because there is low barrier to entry. So that sort of uh, puts a, puts a little bit of a, um, a tether on the, on the other guys who, I mean, there's a, there's a few exceptions. Uh, obviously Evan is one who's, who's managed to, um, to free himself of that sort of leash because he has, I think, uh, managed to make wines that speak of him as well as the place rather than just the place. Um, and the wines are killer, obviously. So, but there's, there's many producers who are in that sort of limbo between those two points who afraid of going too high to get uh, and lose. Are you saying uh, Evan has something that speaks of himself? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he does all of that work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The personality is large. But there's the guys in limbo between these two points uh, where they're, they're maybe hesitant to, to put the prices up too stiffly to, to scare off uh, their markets that they've established. Um, and they don't really want to lower a price either because then obviously that, that lowers um, profit and investment in what they're trying to do to go forward. So there is this sort of handbrake um, sort of weight on, on, the, on the ankles of, of these producers trying to, to break through of this South African low price floor. It's a similar problem, but it's an opposite problem than from what you're saying in, in Napa. There's not a lot of big producers, uh, sort of co-op, ex-co-op producers 
uh, flexing their muscles and trying to to make great wine. They're not, they're, they are trying to make great wine, but they're not succeeding that that successfully. So the best wines coming out of uh, South Africa right now are those smaller, mostly family-run places. Yeah, and I still don't, you know, I mean, there there been some of the big wineries in, in California buying up some of the smaller, you know, the winery Palmire just sold to Gallo. You know, that's kind of one of, you know, the first Colt wineries in, in Napa Valley. And, you know, I don't think anyone's, really concerned that they're going to you know now uber compete with the small producers you know they're just pivoting you know and that's you know it's the difference with like people selling and colgan you know sold her winery a couple of years ago to lvmh you know and i remember thinking well that's a weird thing and she kept like a large percentage of it and it's like, oh, right, she sold a luxury wine that's, you know, $400, $500 a bottle to a luxury good company. So it's no longer, in my opinion, and it's not a knock on the wine or the people who make the wine, but it's now a luxury good. You know, it's a Louis Vuitton handbag. So when people are out to dinner, they look over and see a bottle of Colgan on the table. That is now a luxury good status symbol. You know, and I think symbol, yeah. that's where like wine has... It's a, you know, and it, but I used to, it's it's a luxury good, you know, and I think most people I know who make wine with their families and with their hands and their feet, you know, they don't want to like. I would be offended if something I made was by someone called a luxury good. That's why I'm not trying to you know diss anyone who's involved in those wines. It's just you know you sell to a luxury good company, and I I don't know if you're still a wine producer. All right, well that's a uh... That's a that's a strong statement. I mean, we know the end product is wine, but I mean, what what is the purpose, you know, for a luxury good company, you know, and they own a lot of wineries. So, like, what's the purpose of them, you know, to support farmer? You know, they're they're in the luxury good business. Yeah, so they're making a wine for a market rather than making a wine uh, from within themselves. Yeah, would that be a fair? I think so. You know, it, it's something that, you know, people want, you know, and I mean, we all, you know, I mean, it's the same thing, the Uber hipster, you know, natural wine. I mean, that's, you know, the thing about, you know, I said this one time at when we, we were helping teach a class at UC Davis and someone said, oh, do you do any like carbonic on this? And I said, no. And they're like, what do you think of carbonic? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's the hipster version of 200% new oak. And the person was like, no, it's not. Like, I love carbonic. Like, it's what all my friends like. And I said, yeah, like, that's your demographic. And like, you know, the boomers of America, like, they want 200% new oak because that, like, makes them feel rich and powerful. And like, you know, it, it, it's an interesting kind of thing of what makes people identify with like a wine that they like or would never drink. Yeah. I mean, I used to serve those sort of wines in the restaurant. Um not only those sort of wines, but both of those styles of wines. And people want to taste where they're spending their money. That was my sort of take on it. So right. the, boomers, the boomers wanted to taste the, the luxury uh, and the power. Right. And, you know, because that sort of, that was like looking in the mirror to them. They wanted to, to, to well, I'm worth this. Um, yeah. You know, and then um, the opposite, the, the, the hipster version is that sort of, you know, I'm so authentic and I am just within myself. I had no outside influences and so this, that, this wine's fucked up just like I am. <laughs> you know, like I've got, I've got 
teenage angst at 29 years old and this wine and I are, we're the same, you know? <laughs> uh, oh dear. Uh, having said that, our yeah. wine is a carbonically macerated pimentage, but I won't take offense, mate. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what's the update with this? What, what's the update with the series vineyard? Uh, the series vineyard is, we went and looked at it, I think the weekend before lockdown. Um, and it's, yeah, it's small. It's, yeah. um, it's been, there's no, been no herbicides or, or pesticides on the vineyard. So it is two years old now. So hopefully we'll get a crop off next year. From Grenache primarily or? Yeah, Grenache. So there's um, Grenache Noir. Yeah. So there's, there's three clones of Grenache Noir. Right there. So about a, Half of it is the old clone, and then there's two new clones, um, 25% each of those two um, spots. So bush vine, dry grown, uh, no herbicides, no pesticides. Where's the, the old clone from? Uh, it's, it's, it's the clone that Artie has an, on his farm. So it's, yep. it was the only clone that was Very here cool. until recently. So, yeah, yeah and it's, it, it, the clone seems to have been, like with a lot of South African history, a clone uh, for... Uh, yield, not uh, right. So fortified, yeah, yeah. So I mean, like with with Artie's um, Grenache, it seems to uh, as, as as the vines get older, and I'm obviously speaking to someone who knows a lot more about uh, old vines than I do. But the fruit tends to get more concentrated, the tannins get more concentrated um, as the vine gets older and older. So, so if if the if the if the clone has a tendency to yield quite highly and and not necessarily really intense fruit as that as those vines get older it tends to in my opinion at least or my experience i should say um tends to concentrate into a a more uh nuanced and uh an open style of wine so i look at the old vine grenache vineyards and the wines from say mclaren vale and barossa and those wines are intensely and super intense and super concentrated whereas Artie's uh old vine grenache isn't as intense or as concentrated, but it's just as complex. So we're yeah. we're looking at and, and seeing what works up there. To be honest, it's it's a it's a thousand and fifty meters above sea level. Um, yeah. It's on sort of sandstone with a with a clay uh, um, uh, base, uh, sandstone topsoil, um, and then a clay base, uh, dry grown, uh, westerly facing on a sort of on maybe a sort of like a fifteen degree slope. Um, and there's and there are, and there's and there's a and there's a hundred vines of um, of Tempranillo up there because we they didn't have enough Grenache Noir so uh, we very got, cool yeah so um, yeah high altitude um, cool climate so this is in an area where apples and pears are the main uh, yep. produce um, so yeah and and there's there's ten hectares up there um, to plant uh, we've planted two point nine hectares and so we'll see what comes out and we might plant more depending on on what's up there so. I think the biggest problem... And was there fruit this year or is it next year? No, we first fruit next year. So we dropped all the fruit this year. Um, okay. So we bought the vines in 16 and it was too dry to plant. Obviously, we're in the middle of the drought. So luckily, yep. um, on the Detoy uh, or the Dakia farm um, run by the Detoys, uh, they have a nursery, their plant nursery, because obviously they deal with apples and pears so much. So they planted all of the... Um, uh, all of the vines in the nursery and kept them alive in the nursery block uh, for a year and, yeah. and then uh, planted them up in the vineyard up the hill. So uh, phenomenal to have that uh, op uh, that, uh, that op option available to us because otherwise 
I think we would have had a lot more loss. We had about, I think, 7 to 8% loss. And then a couple of times the guys had to go up there with a, with a truck with, a, with some water on the, uh, on the back just to, just to drip feed a few, few drops of water to keep the vines alive. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's going to be an interesting project. So um, Leon came through from Vinpro, who's the sort of the viticultural um, consultant on the, on the project because uh, the, the, the guys who are um, farming, they're not viticulturists, they're, they're farmers, they're fruit farmers. So right. They, they farm yeah. uh, organic um, apples and pears, mainly for right. export to Europe and to Asia. So they know how to farm and they know how to farm fruit. Um, so he reckons we're going to get probably about sort of 12 tons-ish off next year. Three acre. Uh, no, no, to the, so it's a three hectare. Young Vine Grenache. It's a Young Vine Grenache joke. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> off, off each row. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what's an acre? Is acres like, two, like about... Two and a half hectares, more or less. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's just under an acre. It's just over an acre then. So, yep. yeah, exactly. So yeah, an exciting project. So Very cool. Um, and there's yeah. no other vineyards up in that yeah. valley, virtually. So it's really uh, there is vineyards in the the valley next to it, which is the Achter Witzenberg um, Valley, which is, lies in between the Kobocher Valley, uh, which is the valley we're in, and the um, and the Tulbach um, Valley, where um, uh, where Tulbach Mountain Vineyards. Uh, you probably be familiar with that yep. um, uh, brand now called Fable. Um, yep. So there's two mountain passes away. Um, so yeah, it's um. It's interesting. Um, high altitude Grenache, bush vine, dry grain. We'll, we'll see what comes out. So yeah, a lot of there's a lot of people interested in in the fruit. So we'll, we'll we're going to find out what uh, what we can make from it. Very cool. Yeah, cool man. Well, stay well. Thank you for your time, Tegan. I really appreciate it. Maybe we Thank can you. you guys stay well. Stay well as well, and you know, stay strong and keep when you can keep sending the South African wine over to over to the U.S. I know everyone over here really you know loves the wine and cool man. Uh, Loves the people, so yeah, keep drinking. All right, man. Yep. Take it easy, and uh, and thanks again for staying up for me. Of course, take care. Give Jeanette my best, please.